What's up, guys? Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is Alex Gurevich, the founder and CIO at Haunte Investments, and he is the author of The Wall Street Journal's best-selling book, The Trades of March 2020. And I was really excited to get Alex on the show because he thinks very differently than the majority of my guests with a lot of his forecasts, including massively depressed energy prices, and a very deep, globally coordinated recession that we're heading directly into that will lead us to 0% rates as soon as 2024. He supports all of this with some interesting arguments, and I learned a ton today. I hope you do as well. As always, beneath this piece of content, there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. It's free. I absolutely love writing it. I share my biggest takeaways from conversations just like this and plenty others. And I'd love to have you join the team. Here is Alex Gurevich. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome to the Jay Martin Show. I'm joined right now by Alex Gurevich. Alex, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me over. I'm looking forward to this. So right now, investors, retail investors like myself that are trying to understand the macro picture and then allocate capital in their best interest are hyper-focused on a few key metrics like the inflation prints, uh, the employment numbers, and the likelihood of Powell to increase rates in the future. What do you think most investors are misinterpreting or missing when it comes to the very important macro narratives right now? Well, I think uh, one of the, if you may say so, fallacies is that people are over-focused on what is the Fed saying and what is the immediate policies. Because the reality is, I have written about this recently, not very long ago, and I, what I said is that there is no hope for Fed being suddenly dovish on their own. They will become, they will change policy when the data changes, which it will. But you cannot guess when exactly it would change. But we saw even this one soft CPI print just a few days ago, how much it would change the whole perception of the world. So the whole mood and perception changes quickly, yet it will take some consistent flow of data to drive them. So what they're saying is pretty much one of the things people think that it's relevant, what the Fed says in terms of what the Fed officials say in terms of the guidance, but it's actually not. It's the data that is relevant. They just follow the data. We can kind of understand how they will react to various types of data over long, over like watching them over this year. We know that they will react to employment and inflation numbers, but in the end, it's not, the Fed policy stance change. There'll be no pivot. There will be no change. There will be data change. So that's, I think, the very first thing to understand. And the other thing, with regards to understanding inflation, which I think people tend to forget is the huge time lag, which transpires between the time you can implement any policies that would affect inflation and the actual reaction on inflation. It's very hard to get very easy. It's very hard to think about it. And it's very easy to get into the patterns like, okay, Fed raises rates and inflation is still high. Let's raise, this, raise some more. Inflation is still high. Damn it, let's whack it some more. Mm -hmm. And they keep whacking at it. And even though they know better, but it's one of those things that people cannot get out of this mindset, even if they know better, 
The inflation today has nothing to do with any policy choices that happened this year. It has nothing to do with whether the stock market is up or down this year. All of this is a product of monetary and fiscal expansion that happened in 2020 and 2021. There is nothing Fed could do at all this year to change inflation trajectory this year. The only thing maybe they could incrementally affect the energy prices by just um, creating sentiment in this market, but even that market was driven by events not fully under the control of the policymakers, such as wars and uh, technological cycles with uh, energy industry. So having said that, it's very important to understand that we are not seeing right now any effects of the recent Fed tightening or the recent fall in asset prices. All of those effects will be seen a year and two years from now. And I think reframing it that way would very much change how you think about inflation. No, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I agree with that. And so the inflation, therefore the inflation numbers that we're seeing today are a consequence of the policy from one to two years ago. That makes absolute sense. Therefore, as Powell said, has said many times, he'd rather over tighten because then he has the tools to undo some of the tightening he did. And so I suppose what you're saying is he inevitably is going to over tighten because he will tighten in response to data that we have today that is the result of policy from one to two years ago. And the policy that he's implementing today will not be reflected in the data for another one to two years possibly. And so we'll always be tightening far greater than we necessarily need to, but is Powell therefore just reacting to public sentiment? I mean, public sees the inflation print and they're like, you know, the Fed needs to be seen as taking affirmative action on this problem today with policy today, and that's the disconnect, or what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a psychological bias, bias that even smartest people cannot escape. You get biased by the mood of the market. For example, uh, you get this weak CPI print and everybody's great, hiking cycle is over, party on. Yeah. Then, then and, and when market starts moving in your favor, it's it's very easy to imagine that it will keep doing that. And when market goes against you and like kind of what people are talking about you, it's very easy to get despondent. So same thing with inflation. Like when inflation arises, it's very easy to get into the smooth, like we are in an inflationary crisis. Look at this year-on-year -year CPI number, which actually does not tell us what inflation is. It just tells them tells us what inflation was, but it's very easy to check to confuse what was with what is. Mm. And on this thing about it, it's easier to over tightening. Honestly, I find this whole logic befuddling because they, they say that it's better to over tighten than not tighten enough. But what examples, what I would want to challenge them if I was in that press conference room, what examples he can give when they went through a tightening cycles and stopped tightening too early. And I am almost positive that there are no such examples since 70s okay okay it's definitely not in my career which started in the 90s whenever something is before your career it's harder to like feel a zeitgeist right so anything before 97 i'm not as sure about as whether after 97 when i followed market every tick for the last 25 years right and yeah. i'm positive that in the last 25 years there was not a single instant anywhere in the neighborhood of the instant that they didn't tighten it up every single time the tightening cycle they went through went too far Every right. single time, the last tightening, the last few last tightening was just completely wrong and obviously wrong and retrospectively wrong and wrong at that moment. So 
Uh, I don't know what makes him think that there is higher dangers of not tightening enough, what logic he's using. And the only logic I think he might be using is that, that what I'm saying, just to be devil's advocate and just understand other person's point of view. We were in a certain environment for the last 40 years on this kind of disinflationary environment when stocks and bonds basically marched up with corrections, but were marching up. And if you think that in a different kind of world, you maybe have to go 50 years back to find examples. So maybe uh, my guess is that maybe he's thinking that you do need to go 50 years back to find those examples when you didn't tighten enough. Because right. that's the best I can fathom how to understand that logic at all. Could, could it be, Alex, let me know what you think, that, that Powell just has confidence in his ability to stimulate if and when necessary. And so if he creates massive demand destruction, uh, you know, large unemployment numbers and a shutdown or a slowdown of the economy, he just got enough confidence in the stimulation playbook. And he's like, look, if we over tighten and the economy grinds to a halt, we know how to stimulate. We, we know how to wake the economy up. We can just flood the economy with cash again. Like, do you think he just got enough confidence in that theory that he doesn't need a real, and I'm not saying he's right. I'm just curious, like, you know, uh, possibly, possibly, but I think this confidence is slightly misplaced here because, uh, I mean, it could very well be true. They indeed have tons of tools to stimulate economy. Uh, that goes with, but I also think similarly that they have tons of tools to tighten monetary environment. All they have to do is reduce their balance sheets. To me, to me, actually, interestingly, it's easier to uh, fight inflation than to stimulate because all they have to do to fight inflation, all they had to do, in my opinion, was just start reducing their balance sheet much earlier than they did. Right. Like right. If, retrospectively, what I would tell them to do, I would tell them in 2021, start selling the bonds, right? And that would be both good for the, um, just the balance sheet for the PL because they would sell the bonds before rates go up and so on, right? And that would tighten monetary conditions earlier. And they still have trillions of dollars of bonds that they can sell if they somehow feel that they cannot tighten monetary conditions enough. On the flip side of it, on the other side of it lies the liquidity trap. That is, you cannot get rates below zero. And the reason why they were able to stimulate economy successfully in 2020 is because they also had a huge fiscal impulse which may or may not be here this time, depending on how the politics go. Like the government spent a lot of money sending checks to people. It was not just the Fed. Yeah. And I don't know if the political will is there, right? And secondly, they were able to act very quickly. On the contrary, in 2007 and 2008, they actually acted very slowly. They were incredibly slow and incredibly uh, kind of, uh, resilient to low interest rates and provide the stimulus and the stimulus was tiny compared to what happened in 2020. And, and as a result, we got a fairly deep recession and a fairly sluggish recovery. But what is happening now is way worse than what is happening in 2007, 2008, because at this stage, normally we would already be stimulating while we're still tightening, which makes me think that this recession and the other thing that is happening is that we're having recessionary conditions in other major economies in the world, in Europe and China. So I feel like disproportionate risk of us being really protracted recession and even very disproportionate risk of global depression. You know, when you, when you mention, and let me make sure I heard you correctly, you're not sure if this administration has the political will that we saw in 2020 to just really start mailing out checks to individuals 
And, you know, look at the recent, if I understood that correctly, let me know. Look at the recent midterm results that were largely, it seemed to me, I'm, I'm a Canadian, I'm not based in the US, but it seemed like lots of young voters voting for very inflationary policies, um, like these, these climate action policies, like uh, forgiveness of, of student loan debt. And there's, you know, it's easy to say, oh, they miss, because there's some recent polling in the US that showed the majority of Americans support new stimulus checks in order to combat inflation, which seems counterintuitive. And the critics on Twitter say, oh, it's because people don't understand how inflation works. And I would say maybe that's the case, or maybe these individuals that were polled, you know, don't have any cash savings and they're sitting on $50,000 in debt, student debt or otherwise. Inflation is kind of their friend. Maybe they do understand it just fine. But what are your thoughts on that? So I would say that they have the political will because they've shown through forgiveness of student loans, they can buy votes very effectively. The young demographic in the United States showed up to vote in this election in greater numbers than, than previously. But what do you think about that? Well, so first of all, I just want to be clear. My statements are not political. So I don't like right now talk about who's doing Got better it. or who worse job. But uh, what I really mean about that is that unlike what we've had last two years, we have a divided government for better or for worse there is still right 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 which it does not mean that no stimulus bills can be passed but what i think is that anything very radical is much harder to pass any kind of anything radical because uh, half, because any anything significant and radical could be blocked by republicans and i think given that there is still some inflation hawkishness going on seeing major stimulus right now it's hard for me to see there will be some measures, but I just don't think they'll be radical enough, like nothing as radical as 2020 yeah. uh, stimulus, I think, can be passed quickly enough. Yeah. And the question is, and it's very hard to guess, how will those things work against global global headwinds? But all I, that's why I'm saying it's not like I know that there will be global depression. I'm just saying that the risks are elevated because central banks are still tightening into global slowdown and to the shrinkage of dollar supply and into the idea that the world is not making enough energy to support global growth. We don't have enough energy produced to support global growth. And there is not, not enough dollars to buy energy at the current energy prices. Okay, I want to dive into that bullet point. Um, there's not enough energy to supply global growth. So I want to bookmark that because my last question for you on the inflation front, we'll probably go back and forth here. What is your inflation sentiment, Alex? You know, we talk about today's inflation numbers are a consequence of policy from 18, 24 months ago. So therefore, do you expect, despite these tightening measures, inflation to increase for a little bit longer, for a long time? Or are you, do you think we've hit peak inflation? What are your thoughts on that front? Um, it's very hard to time peak inflation. There are a lot of people... Uh, who tried, who see right now various signs of inflation rollover. I just don't want to stake too much on saying that inflation will roll over in the next two or three months. My high degree of confidence is not at what, where is the peak inflation now? My high degree of confidence that we're heading into disinflation and most likely deflation over the next two years. So I expect inflation to be year on year. Net. For example, one year forward, one year inflation, I expect to be negative. And sorry, how long? Like for example, starting from a year from now, yeah, for a year. So like inflation of 2024, like middle 2023 to 2024. That's why I expect inflation to become actually negative. Negative, negative. Sorry, negative. This, this is a juvenile question, so forgive my ignorance. Negative relative to what? 
just means that well, when you say like inflation right now, people say seven percent year on year, but I expect it to become like minus two percent. Minus two percent. Okay. All right. So seven percent that we're seeing right now, I think will turn into minus two, minus three percent if I had to throw my best guess. And it could be, of course, way off, but that's my best guess. And there is nothing Fed will be able to do about that. So let me ask you a question about your energy thesis then, because if we're not producing enough energy to support global growth, you could make the assumption the cost of energy is going to have to go up. And energy being the only input that's required in every single thing from the plants behind me to my t-shirt to my car, energy is that universal input. Do we expect inflated prices there? And how does that explain that to me, your, your deflationary thesis? No, I don't think energy prices will go up because notice what I said, we don't have enough energy to support global growth at these prices. So what's going to happen is global growth is going to have to go down. Demand destruction. Okay. Massive, unprecedented since the 30s, probably. That's what I see. There it is. There it is. Okay. So massive, unprecedented demand destruction not seen since the 30s. And you're talking about the world's largest economies, probably US, Europe, China. China. Yeah, demand destruction in US, Europe, and China, and probably starting with China. Can you explain, can you elaborate on this idea for me a little bit? Well, this is, again, this is how I see it. And it's just one theory and one view. There is certain amount of dollars floating around on the system, right? And then if you, what right now is happening, that the amount of dollars in the world is shrinking because dollar is strengthening. So dollar is getting, more in demand. A lot of loans are collapsing because of high interest rates. So people are choosing to pay down loans instead of extending credit. At the same time, um, Federal Reserve is reducing the running of the balance sheet. So there are hundreds of billions of dollars being taken out of global circulation. Mm. And uh, energy generally trades on dollars, right? if you think of it like a simplistic yeah. way, right? So at some point, people just don't enough dollars. That, like if you have to imagine that energy price, if you were to buy the same amount of energy, energy costs would have to go up. But yeah. what if you don't have enough money to buy the same amount of energy, then you just end up changing behavior that is buying, producing less and buying less energy. And we've seen this, we've seen already, we're seeing those uh, anecdotes already, like manufacturing plants in Germany closing down because they cannot, um, Pay for the energy and actually we're already having very disappointing gdp numbers from germany and from japan the countries where situation is difficult in terms of it's not worth making things so instead of paying more for energy you just stop production mm -hmm. and you could say oh that's stopping production they'll create more supply problems but yes at first but there is also another fact of stopping production that reduces employment in the world, it reduces consumption on other goods. So it's a chain reaction that is slowly creeping through the global system. So this is what I'm gonna, I think is going to happen. People will just say, instead of, well, they'll consume as much energy as they can afford, and then they stop consuming. And, okay, okay, I'm, I'm following here. I need to, uh, I need to ask some questions. I'm just not sure which question to ask first. <laughs> Right, so what, what are some indicators that you're going to look for, Alex, that are going to tell you this thesis is coming true? Like what's occurring now that's giving you affirmation, right, in your conviction? And what will you look for next to, to give you the confidence this is occurring, the direction you think it's going to? 
Well, one of the things that give me confirmation is the price action. And you could see that despite very bullish fundamentals for energy, energy prices are actually leveling off. That right. is a telltelling sign, right? That energy is not going up as, because we, we've just, you mentioned, alluded to this, there is a structural problem with energy because of the green energy transition, there is no investment in fossil fuels, but transition is not going fast enough to retire fossil fuels. So we're kind of stuck between the rock and the hard place for the next five to 10 years with fossil fuels. It makes no sense to dig up more, but at the same time, they still need it. Mm. So that would create a perfect scenario for rising prices and it's not happening. We even see this with food prices and the food crisis in the world is totally not resolved. Like, I mean, I've seen people talk about fertilizer shortage earlier this year, almost creating a certainty of global, global hunger in the coming months. Uh, I am kind of re-quoting people. Don't, I'm not the original source of any of this analysis, but there is this, if you really think about this, food problems in the world are not resolved right now. And no. the food prices actually corrected this year. Yeah. There is just not, it does not matter like how hungry you are. If you don't have enough money to pay for the food, you're not paying for the food. Same thing with energy, right? There is just, I think the shortages of money are coming. They both, it both makes sense. And we're saying anecdotal evidence. And just the strengthening of dollar is also a very good telltale sign of the fact that dollars are in shortage. Yeah. Whatever yeah. is, what, what's in shortage? Dollars. So yeah. paradoxically, dollars are, as much on shortage as on oil, I would say. If you think of dollars and oil being on the same level roughly last recent few months, mm. way off from the highs, right? But dollar has been rising until like last few days, at least it's been rising relative to other currencies and oil has been also rising. But what I'm, what I'm really saying is that a shortage of dollars is no less dire than the shortage of oil. Right. Now, in order for this, to make sure I understand, in order for this to materialize, we would need global a global coordinated depression, if not deep, deep recession, correct? Because right. as long as there's any affluent buyer to maintain the price of energy, this would could not occur the way you're laying it out, correct? Well, but it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of degree. I just think the conditions are higher for coordinated recession because in the past recessions, China was the big growth engine for the world. Yeah. Over the last like 20 years, China was just such a big growth engine and it's kind of going away. China has huge overhangs of overpriced real estate and other problems as far as I understand. And Europe is struggling with meeting the energy prices. And Europe might be able to pull itself out of it through military and infrastructure investment. Yeah. So in some sense, Europe has outs as poker players say, but China has less outs. And it's paradoxically US is kind of, it seems it's doing better for now, but it has no easy like way to get out of the situation because uh, get out of like deflation and disinflation situation, I think like at least on the short horizon. On the short horizon, but, right. Because we're still running the tightening, tightening on all frontiers. So if, if I can speculate, maybe two scenarios could unfold as a consequence of this. Number one, you know, one of the biggest contributors to this would be a, is a shortage of dollars. That's what's driving this this direction. At what point, you know, Russia's one of the world's largest providers of energy. It's in their best interest that the world moves off of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. China is probably aligned with that ideology. You know, at what point do countries start unmass? 
moving away from dollars as their their um, their settlement tool. You know what? Honestly, uh, you know this joke about the rumors of my death are great, greatly exaggerated. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think same thing can be applied to the dollar, right? <laughs> if you don't believe in dollar, like yeah, maybe you don't believe in dollar, but what do you believe in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other currencies more. That was a great, great analogy and answer to that question. All right. Okay. Uh, secondly, how is the U.S. going to respond to this? I, I mean, I imagine, right? We're staring this global coordinated recession in the face. We see rates be cut dramatically, right? And you know, do you foresee in the next few years, uh, if you had an expectation of where rates would land, wh where's that at, Alex? Zero. Back to zero. Back to zero. I mean, Back I think to it's zero. the only path. Interesting. Interesting. And well, when I say the only path, I never like I want investors to understand. I never say when I say very forcefully, this is the outcome. It never actually means that that's the only outcome. It means that this is the most likely outcome. No yeah, matter yeah. how forcefully I say something, it always means that when I have a lot of confidence, it's not confidence that that's what's going to happen. It's the confidence that that's what we should be betting on. Yeah, I get that. And and absolutely, you know, all we can do is bet on probabilities. There's no certainties in this game. So I, I absolutely appreciate that. Uh, could you speculate on a time horizon where the I, U.S. is back to zero rates? Two years, I would say. Two years. Okay. Two years and then protract the time of zero rates. And then a protracted time of zero rates. That's my that's my best guess, but it could they could we could get there faster. Two could years, they, I think, is a safe bet for zero rates. And then uh, several years from there, then it, and depending on how deeply we'll dig ourselves, because once rates get to zero and inflation is negative, we'll still be in a very tight monetary situation with positive real rates. Does sure. it make sense? If rates are negative, even zero interest rate is too high. Going to negative interest rates would be very People will be very reluctant to do, and it would be very painful, and nobody wants to do that. What Europe and Japan did. Yeah. yeah. I think U.S. in some sense, the flip side of this, one thing that Powell is correct about, we have the advantage because we have strong domestic currency. What is good, like think about this: if you are the person that makes a product, like dollars, right, and then people are, this product is really in demand. You can always buy yourself out of any situation by selling that product. Yeah. So if things will get too tight, all we have to make is more dollars. And the question is like the time lag and how quickly you can do those things. And that's what happened in 2020, we made a lot more dollars. And for a while, it didn't seem to be causing inflation. If right. you remember right. inflation crisis did not start till 2021. Yeah. And, but we're making the dollars in 2020. Same thing might happen like in 2000, we might still see, we'll see inflation numbers at some point going down, we'll stop taking dollars out of the system, then it'll be a few months before they actually will reverse the policy and start making dollars. Mm -hmm. And they'll take a while to get like new quantitative easing going on or get like some kind of massive fiscal stimulus. We're not close to that unless some catastrophic event happens. And by the time we do it, there will be sufficient lag that uh, things will be tight for a while yet before those new dollars will find a way to work in a system. But the good thing is because we're not like emerging market country which has its currency crushing and balance of payments problems. We have strong domestic currency. Everybody wants dollars. Eventually, the Fed will just let them have them. 
mm. in that way they're operating correctly right if people want dollars they give it to, give them to them sure sure sure, sure. so so circling this this picture then in 2024 you know we're back to zero rates depressed energy prices probably in the middle of some global coordinated deep recession if not depression deflationary environment today therefore how are you setting up your portfolio where are you looking where are you playing defense and are you playing offense anywhere and if so where well obviously this is more available to institutional investors but you can just bet and what we would do just bet on rates going to zero there are direct bets to options or interest rate futures you could choose and there's a wide variety of instruments you can use to make such bets when it comes to risk assets like are you gonna buy stocks here are you are you gonna buy uh real estate here i think this is always a very tough question because Obviously, if my scenario plays out and we're really going to go through a lot of rough times, there is a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to buy assets such as stocks early, cheaper than that today. I think there's a very good chance that you buy them cheaper than that today. However, if you ask me where are they going to be 10 years from now, if I'm seeing zero interest rate policy coming in two years, I'm also seeing bull market coming, arising from that. Yeah. So do you want to wait? For the bottom before getting into this bull market or do you want to start getting into this bull market now future bull market now even knowing that there is a very good chance of severe correction still continuing yeah. like are you comfortable buying stocks planning to double or triple your money over the next decade even if you think there's a very good chance of before that you'll go 30 percent down it depends on your nature as an investor there is no right or wrong answer there what i feel that this is a stage of the cycle then you can start looking for bargains instead of like saying i'm just going to go 100 percent invested on some generic stock index if you find that something is i'm not a stock analyst i'm not going to give i'm just going to be upfront i'm not going to give any stock advice any sector yeah. advice or anything it's more just i'm just doing this conceptually but if you think that some stocks can start looking cheap before the bottom before the bottom is reached. I can give historical examples. Like, look at 2000, the bottom of global financial crisis stock market did not come till March 2009. But there were some great buys in November 2008. You could buy bonds of banks and stocks of banks. You could buy eBay in November 2008 at an incredibly good price. And I think that's when it hit the bottom and it didn't even have any debt. There were so many interesting buys that you could happen at that time before several months before you actually hit the absolute bottom so i i would invite people if they have their ideas to think and explore and decide if there is any bargains they see in the world now you mentioned so i won't i won't push this more than once because you know i don't give investment advice either um do you have any thoughts i talked to a lot of individuals who are saying, telling me 2020s, this is the decade to be long commodities. And I can understand the macro argument why, you know, I, I also talk to a lot of sort of global bears uh, like yourself in this picture that you've painted is not optimistic for commodities if we're entering some kind of a global demand destruction, you know, the world's not gonna want things. 
do you have any thoughts on the commodity bulls for the decade that are talking about this decade is a great decade to be long commodities. You're going back to hard assets, income generating companies away from growth stocks. What, what are your thoughts? You know, I'm not sure about this concept of decade to be long commodities, but I would say with certain commodities, I would hold the same view as with stocks. I think there are going out for 10 years forward. Yes, on certain commodities, I see very good risk reward. Whether they hit the bottom yet or not, I don't know, but taking nibbles of commodities in which you believe the story, I don't think there is anything wrong. That I have no problem talking about because that's a macro thing, right? It's not a stock advice or investment advice. This is more like just how I view the world. There are commodities, like for example, if you believe in infrastructure story, building like uh, energy infrastructure, why wouldn't you want to be long copper? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if, right, why if you're building uh, like, you can be look at precious metals to look at the cycle something you know what in the long run i think there is upside there uh you could look at energy and this is a little trickier but you could for example if you you could say like well you know if we're having global slowdown maybe energy will go down temporarily but in the long run we still need more energy next five to ten years and the displacement of fossil fuels is not fast enough if you call that view so there is a lot of opportunities to say, I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years, but I have a pretty good confidence for the decade. Mm. Okay. All right. Look, Alex, I want to point people to where they can find more of you. Um, where should we send them? Well, the best place to find me is on Twitter. For as long as Twitter is still operating. <laughs> Agurevich23, like my first initial, Agurevich23. Um, at, at Gmail, and I also... I recommend people to read my book, uh, The Trades of March 2020. You can find the link on my Twitter profile. This is the book in which I discuss the events and financial markets uh, that happened at the beginning of pandemic and the implications of yeah. um, what happened afterwards. The, the Trades of March, yeah. Wall Street Journal bestselling book. Congratulations on that, your second book. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> hold on, what do you mean? Are you concerned about the future of Twitter? What are your thoughts there? No, I'm just, I'm just laughing there. I'm more, it's more like, I don't know. There's a lot of changes there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Okay. Here's, here's an interesting idea. Maybe it's not interesting. I don't know. I think it is. Do you think that, that Musk right now is setting a bit of an example that may percolate the rest of tech culture in that, you know, he's sending out memos to his team saying, if, if you're into a hardcore culture, 80 hour work weeks in the office, then this is the place for you. Otherwise, we will buy out your comp packages. And this is very counterculture in tech, right? He's driving a hard line and maybe showing the industry that you can bootstrap mega tech companies to income. And, and maybe this starts a bit of a trend. What do you think? Well, it's definitely the attempt, right? A lot of people were yeah. talking about this, but again, I'm feeling a little bit out of my depth here because I don't want yeah. to do the revenue analysis. It was more of a joke area for me. Yeah. I cannot really do revenue analysis on Twitter or how to run tech companies. Yeah, all right, all right. But I'm not I'm not averse to what you're saying. I just don't have any expertise to lend here. Yeah, got it. All right, cool. Look, Alex, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I invited you on because I knew I could learn a lot from you and I feel like I did today. So. Um, you introduced me to some new topics that I have to go and learn more about now, which is usually the, the uh, sign of a good interview. So I, I appreciate your time very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.